Welcome to Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. Number 30. This is Ali Matu, and I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, A.J. Conrad. How's it going, A.J.? It's going well, Ali. Having a good day today, so can't wait to talk to you a little bit about uh, Snowpiercer. So we're definitely talking Snowpiercer today. What's in our crossover chamber, Conrad? Today in our crossover chamber, we are pitting Snowpiercer against the Hunger Games. Which dystopian future would you rather be stuck in? Oh, man. I kind of... I don't even know how to answer that question. Because I'd like to pick none of the above. Um, And then we're going to have a uh, top five movies with trains linking into Snowpiercer's premise. Um, And so before we get into Snowpiercer, um, for our non-spoiler discussion, let's kind of talk about, like, how'd you hear about this movie, Conrad? And... And how'd you get introduced to it? Well, as you know, I, I like some of the darker films. <laughs> so, <laughs> not surprisingly, when I started hearing about this, actually, well over a year ago, I, I saw a couple of articles about it, and it was actually released in other countries long before it made its way here. Um, and it had been submitted to different film festivals and things like that. And so, a couple of friends of mine had emailed me and said, oh, what do you know about this? Um and at, at that point, I knew nothing. And I said, oh, that looks like an interesting idea. I had vaguely heard of the graphic novel that it's based on, which is a French graphic novel. Yeah. Um, but Loosely based on. It's, yeah. it's a lot of the imagery and things like that. And the ideas, I think, you can solidly put in the graphic novels. Uh, yeah. In place, yes. Um, and some of, the, some of the main plot points. Um but uh, yeah, and then I kind of didn't hear much about it. And then I heard it was being, instead of really being released into theaters, it was like limited release um, this past June and July, I think. Um, and then I heard you could get it directly on um, on Amazon and in other places and just, just download it and watch it streaming. Um, and then because of its popularity, I heard from a lot of people, including some super nerdy friends of mine, that they had been able to actually see it in the theaters because it had done so well that they then decided to release it a little bit more widely. It's such a wild ride that uh, Snowpiercer has had here in America. And you're, and you're right here. Uh, the movie was released in uh, different parts of the world, uh, definitely in Asia in the summer and fall of 2013. And now here we're getting, we're getting it in the States just about a year later. And um, that's a that's an interesting journey. Um, we'll get into that in a bit. I'm I'm wondering if um, uh, Bong Joon Ho, the director of the film, if you've been exposed to some of his other works in the past. Um, I saw the host. Um, yeah. which I don't know if you ever. Saw. I haven't seen. No, this it's, is my first time seeing this director's work. It's kind of interesting because there's actually um, there's been a lot more. Um, access to different Korean films, which, and I and I think that that's partially because we're able to get things distributed a little bit more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had heard about the host, and that you know, again, it's one of those films that I would probably like. So I, I caught it. It's <laughs> it is you know, it's it's yet another one of these kind of interesting little ideas, and um, it's he it's very interesting just how he got Snowpiercer though because. For him, this was a huge budget film, um, and it's also yeah. the most expensive film I believe ever made in Korea. And it's so, his first uh, uh, primarily English film as well, right? Oh, yeah. So I should mention, like his other films are 
you know, there's lots of subtitles. And so you should be aware of that, but not a reason not to watch them. No. Um, and yeah. And, and he's, you know, he's got interesting sensibilities. And so, you know, I, I think if you're into films like the matrix or that kind of look, he, he has that down. Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Like in the movie, um, uh, Last year, when it came out in other parts of the world, um, it, it did get good reviews for the most part. And we were kind of talking before the show about how it did better in certain areas than others. And we'll get into that once we talk about the movie. But it was it, the rights for the American release, the North American rights, were acquired by the Weinstein Company, which is notorious in Hollywood for being a, a bit cutthroat in its business. Um, we talked about the Weinstein Company last when we talked about the Oscars and how they are uh, very infamous for the way in which they uh, campaign for their films. Um, and so what happened here, it was scheduled for a wide release on June 27th, 2000, um, or it was scheduled for a wide release this summer. Um, and June 27th, it was released in just eight theaters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the delay here was because Harvey Weinstein uh, wanted 20 minutes cut from the film. He wanted the pace to be different, and he wanted an opening and closing monologue. Yeah, and, you know, I also think the the movie itself for, you know, generally, and for this kind of movie in America, it was two hours long. And I think that he didn't like that. And he basically, he and um, Bon butted heads on this because he and... You know, basically, he's like, there's no part of this that I want to cut out. Yeah. Um, and Which I get as as an artist. You've created this work. It's been released. It's gotten uh, rave reviews around the world. Um, so why cut it? Why change it? Well, right. And I just I, I also think. Um, you know, I, I think that it's it's also tough for a director like this, since this is like his first sort of big U.S. break, if you will. Yeah. To go up against that. I mean, and you're talking about you're talking about the person that was the, you know, released films like Pulp Fiction and The Master and things like that, um, which are, you know, it's hard to argue with somebody like that. And who obviously has a ton of power because he's producing these crazy films. But yeah. on the other hand, you know, I think if you're the director like he is and feel like your vision is going to be totally wasted if you do that, I, I guess I can see I yeah, can see where he's coming from. It's an interesting view into the politics that uh, that work out in Hollywood, and um, Harvey Weinstein uh, basically punished uh, Bong for for this dispute. Um, really limited the release of the movie, um, and as you mentioned, now it's uh, because it's been doing well, even in its small limited release and its video on demand, um, it, it expanded to um, to a few more theaters. It's over a hundred theaters, um, so you can probably catch it if you're in a major metropolitan um, city. And it retained its original vision, um, so it was not it did not have the uh, have the voiceover or anything like that. But it kind of made me think, like what what the that version of the film would be and i think well, we, does it does it remind you a little of blade runner that's exactly <laughs> what i have right here in my show notes conrad exactly well, there, there's a lot that reminds me of blade runner anyway but i mean and and i think that it's interesting because i think because of the video on demand and because of all the buzz this film got 
uh, it's actually done okay. And it, and you know, like films of this nature. And I mean, come on, this film and and this is you know, we will get into this in the the later discussion. But I mean, it heavily references Terry Gilliam, oh, and yeah, and yeah. we're talking about a director that obviously tries to thwart you know the hollywood machine and that kind of thing i i have a feeling terry gilliam is giggling a little bit somewhere <laughs> um and a lot of his films were not they definitely were not um commercially successful when they were first released and have got have gained a cult following um brazil is definitely one of those and that's the one that everybody points to as as gilliam's masterpiece yeah. um and then you know time bandits obviously um Baron Munchausen and all those kinds of films. Um, so, you know, I'm not really surprised at this result, but I also have to point out that, you know what? People who are super nerdy will have their way. Because, yeah, and- because a lot of the, the you know, the blogs like The Verge and, um, you know, some of the, the sort of sci-fi review sites and whatever have all been talking this up. Um, and- yeah, and there was even a free Snowpiercer petition that went around the Internet. Um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of fans of this genre wanted it to be released. And, you know, it's it's a, it's again, it's an interesting experiment. Um, the video on demand and limited release might have been a punishment from the Weinstein company. However, it's been an interesting experiment because I saw it on video on demand. I don't know what format you saw it in. No, um, I saw it on that. I thought about going to the theater and, you know, a, a couple of friends of mine actually did see it in the theater and said it was excellent. Um, but, you know, I I was being terribly lazy, so decided to just lounge around and watch it. Yeah, and I want. I, <laughs> Although I will say, I then also had to listen to to Bill's commentary, which was at times Bill's commentary. <laughs> <laughs> he was my talking theater person this time in my own home. <laughs> well, I I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and I downloaded it onto my iPad to watch while I was flying out to San Diego for Comic Con, and I, I I wanted a film that would kind of get me in a Comic Con mood, and uh, well, this film got me in quite a mood. Um, I don't know if it was a Comic Con mood, but it was so convenient, and it's um it's been doing well in both formats, in both video on demand and in its limited release. So it's it's a cool experiment. So, um. Uh, you know, we're, I guess we, we're going to have to get into spoilers, but before we do, would you give it a thumbs up? Go see, mm-hmm. go recommend. Overall, visually, I would give it a thumbs up. But, and, you know, I think that there are pros and cons to this. Overall, I thought that there were some really interesting things posed, but I ha- I still have some reservations about it. Yeah. So, you know, I do think it's worth seeing. I think it's definitely worth doing the video on demand would I spend that money in the theater in the big screen? Hmm. Part of me says no. Yeah, my I'm going to say if you're a fan of Brazil, of Blade Runner, of uh, dystopian types of films, um, go see it. And if you're if you're a real big fan of that genre, probably go see it in the theater. Uh, but if you're a fan of sci-fi in general, do video on demand. Um, it's I mean, I watched it for like six bucks. That's pretty cheap compared to my twenty two dollar Guardians of the Galaxy ticket. So well, and that's that's why I'm a little bit I'm a little bit torn in terms of my recommendation here, because visually I will say this is an incredible film. Um, the set pieces were incredible. The detail, oh, absolutely. Yeah. and honestly, the cinematography and some of these camera shots just incredible. Um, yeah. really, really well done. And I honestly cannot wait to see more from this director. 
Absolutely. I w- it makes me want to uh, watch his other films. So I-, I agree with you. So let's get into our spoilery discussion. Um, from here on out, we're definitely going to get into plot details. So um, Conrad, tell me what you thought. What It seems like visually you and I are on the same page here. I think the cinematography was amazing. And this whole premise of this film, um, uh, of the social class laid out across this train with the low class in the back, um, upper class in the front, um, I, I, that's a ridiculous premise. But as you, I mean, it sounded really silly when you describe this film to someone. It's like, okay, that sounds stupid. But then... Um, the way it was done visually was so interesting to me. I every time the doors opened and there's a you're going into a new train or a new car or whatever they're called, um, I was so excited to see what we're going to see. And the, yeah, go. Oh go no, for it. I was going to say, and it's interesting because the original graphic novel this was written or published rather in 1982, mm-hmm. and you know they've obviously taken some liberties with the with the plot, but. Um, we should also mention that the whole premise of this is that the humanity has we have done ourselves in here. We yeah. because of global warming, we use this experimental um, CW seven was it? Yeah, CW seven. Um, yeah. This chemical know, to try to cool the world down, or which, uh, yeah. which yeah. is a chemical from the CW channel. Obviously, it's filled with <laughs> vampire diaries and that kind of thing. And they thought that should cool- have been the first warning right there. I know, I know. Destroy the world. Um, no, but it, you know, it <laughs> overdid what it was supposed to do. So basically, the world is stuck in this ice age, and nothing can live outside of this train, which apparently they happen to have, and it's a perpetual engine. Um, and so, but it's it's very much like the Titanic. It's set up by class. So if you were lucky enough and rich enough to get um, a, a higher class ticket, you have the privileges at the front of the train. At the beginning part of the film, we don't know what that means, but yeah. the back of the train is most definitely steerage. Um, it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's bad. They're living in squalor. And this is where I was, you know, in terms of showing that, how cramped the quarters are, the, the level of squalor these people live in and and lack of hope there's no light it has this really desaturated quality again i like i kept thinking matrix 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 you know like that that just really sort of the, the grays and the blues um specifically matrix when neo gets brought into um the nebuchadnezzar um but yeah. you know there's that kind of thing it's very bleak it's very dark but it's also like there's some very rich colors so you get introduced to um, the leader of this of this group of people, the the back of the train, um, Chris Evans' character, the the Curtis, his character. Well, or are no, you, you get introduced to Chris Evans. You get introduced to Chris Evans' character, who is sort of the prodigy, and then uh, the John Hurt character, um, yeah. who I was very happy to see, Miss, yeah. missing a couple of limbs there, but um, he <laughs> he's looking like the elder statesman and just you know just sort of warm tones around his face and things like that, and just a very storybook looking is what I kept thinking. Like this is almost like a fairy tale. Um, and you know, it was, I gotta say, it was a little funny to see John Hurt, um, where, uh, in this film after the last time I saw him in the Doctor Who 50th anniversary, right. um, a little different, he looked a little different, but, uh, it was great to see him and he's now p- definitely playing the, the very, very blatant homage to, uh, uh, to Gilliam. His, character's his name, name is Gilliam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, and that's cool. It's this to me right there. 
the film knows what it's doing. And this whole film, it's such a ridiculous premise. It all hinges on the film um, knowing how far it can push the envelope, knowing its social commentary, but not going overboard on it, not getting too too hammy, not getting too ridiculous. And uh, I, it gets a little absurd in certain places. I mean, you've got this group of people, they're eating these gross pro- gelatinous protein bars. Now, they're, total Soylent Green moment there, right? Uh, and, yeah, like, and it's, it's you know, so there's all these little, like, Easter eggs um, that are thrown yeah. in there. Um, so there is an absurdity which, to it. Which, honestly, Conrad, uh, you, you know, you find out that these are insects ground up, and that didn't really bug me too much. Actually, you know what? I have right here in my little notes. It's like these people have been starving for whatever. Why would they even care? Because yeah. at some point you're going to kind of be like, okay, well, you know, I pr- pretty much you have to eat anything. And, and I don't know. There's a lot of cultures where you eat insects. Um, exactly. I don't know if you've I, ever seen it in, in New York, but there's this thing where you eat the chocolate covered ants. Yeah, Like there's course. a certain time of year and stuff and a couple of the little food trucks sell them. I see the chocolate-covered grasshoppers a lot, um, a lot, like relatively speaking to how many insects I see on for sale for eating. But um, it didn't really gross me out that much, and we're not going to spoil Soylent Green here, but I thought Sp- Soylent Green had much more of a uh, oomph to its, its reveal. Um, but it, it does get a little hammy at points, but, uh, you know, the, the plot revolves around this whole idea of this lower-class staging a revolt um, moving their way through the train, that forward momentum. Um, and there's these interesting ideas that go back to the Wizard of Oz and um, the whole uh, the whole sort of kind of religious worship of Wilford, this right. individual who has created this train, the great Wilford. And again, we're in spoiler zone here. So Wilford is played by excellently, I think, at least acted in a, in a great way by Ed Harris. Um, I like that reveal at the end, but it eh. is. <laughs> I like the hold on. I said I like the reveal. I didn't. Well, the ending. There's there's problems there, and we'll, we're going to get to it. But the the idea, the worship of this character, to me, it reminded me going all the way back to the Wizard of Oz, but also going as recent as uh, Bioshock Infinite and the way that uh, Bioshock Infinite plays on these uh, these ideas of politics and how we worship the founding fathers and how we're kind of hiding some things about social class and slavery. That game does a fantastic job of its social commentary. And well, I think this film was tapping into very similar ideas. Well, and also in The Matrix, um, when he when Neo meets the architect. It's a very similar mm. idea. Like there's mm-hmm. all these stories and, and things behind it or he meets the Oracle or, you know, like there's that kind of stuff driving the plot forward that you, you know, you have these characters that are spoken about by everybody, but you don't really know what they actually are. Um, yeah. And, and it's it very, and, it, and it's really a, like, what is the actual situation? What is really happening here? Because there was so much, I mean, within this film, there's so much propaganda surrounding Wilford. Um, yeah. and like there's propaganda, like, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but, um, you know, so there's definitely like a mish, miss, sorry, mishmash of different things, but I do think one of the interesting and good things that the director did here is that he kept driving the plot forward. Yeah. Um, he didn't pause too much, tried not to dwell too much on each thing and every single train car was a different 
world basically or a different different stage very video game like in that way that you have to kind of like get past a challenge uh we should also mention tilda swinton plays this kind of like a super creepy authoritative role that she's basically the mouthpiece of wilford spewing all this garbage um a total Terry Gilliam character. Oh, like, a totally. Stri- ripped out of Brazil. Totally. Uh, Brazil, yeah. or uh, I would even say Time Bandits or whatever. She's just this very exaggerated, absurd character with fake teeth and wearing like a mink coat. Yeah. Um, and she just keeps spewing the same rhetoric, which is, you know, whatever whatever he has told her to and just that he's so great. Um, and Don't just, you understand what ev- everything that Wilford has done for you? Right. It's a lot of that over and over, that rhetoric, that the worship of, of right. him. Um, and so basically, you know, the main protagonist of this revolt, um, Curtis, and um, to some extent, it, Gilliam is obviously the mastermind behind this and pushing Curtis forward. And the whole the whole piece of where they're moving forward with this is because their children keep getting taken and they don't know why. Yeah. Um, Which is again, super over the top and creepy, but that's really what's pushing them to get through the gates. They, they enlist the help of these two um, fantastic characters um, played by um, uh, Son Gun Ho. And he, he basically plays the engineer that has rigged all the doors between the cars and then uh, go uh, son, who is his daughter which uh, that's um, a little the, matrixy these, as well. Yeah, these are the uh the actors that play them and I believe both of them do appear in previous so, similar to other directors we know. Both of them appear in some of his other huh. films. Um and that premise was enough to get me hooked and you combine um the sort of mystery around that and why these kids are being taken, what is in each car, what are we going to see and that got me hooked. That that kept me going and as you move forward um uh, each train reveals interesting surprises and right uh, the- and it's also you know when when you are moving forward into each car it, it does get incrementally better and then it suddenly gets wildly better just yeah. in terms of and so when you see like so they move from this completely cramped and disgusting space and you just kind of there is there is first of all you notice immediately that things are different because the attention to detail, it just even relating to how they're lighting the scenes and yeah. how they are filming the scenes, like the camera technique in this way is just pretty like what they are doing is incredible. Um, well, and, and after spending so much time in the back of the train with the lower class, um, small reveals just are, are, are jarring. Like, mm-hmm. I think one of the reveals you see an individual um, uh, with a dentist mm-hmm. um, having some dental work done. But not and, even that, just the physical space for people to move through and see yeah okay so you've got these hundreds of people crammed in the back of this train and as you move forward you see people with their own little like like luxury um sleeping spaces you see people and and some of these things are also kind of cool in one of those like almost like a children's book way like there's a whole like aquarium car Mm -hmm. where you and when you see that and you see food and the fact that these people in the back of the train have been eating 
the protein bars and people up here like they get to sit down and have sushi how crazy is that the sushi scene was really interesting and i think it well um, it's also a little hitting you over the head with it right it is it is of course which is very true to a lot of the uh, sci-fi movies of this genre um to me what i liked about that that chunk of the film the the real middle chunk of the film it helps to bring awareness to all these different aspects of social class and how it influences um, the resources that you have access to, what you look like, um, what luxury is, healthcare, um, your food, your diet, what you eat. Um, you see all of that in a very visually interesting way. Well, right. And then also the um, Tilda Swinton character is just hitting it home being like everybody has their own place everybody yeah. has their own and there's like these weird little propaganda type hand gestures that she uses which is you know very stylized and weird and yeah. um to show the everything in their place kind of thing which you figure out later what this means mm-hmm. um but it's you know and it's we have seen a, a bit of the not a bit of this a lot of this in as themes in movies um it, you know, this idea that, oh, well, certain people are in this echelon of society. I mean, I think you saw that with, you know, the the, the whole 1%, um, that all that, when you're talking about that in terms of U.S., when you see things about the, the access, Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, you see things in terms of um, the Obamacare and the arguments for and against that. Um, and you know it's and also much more recently the the all the um i don't know i'm sure you have seen this but all the the questions about minimum raise and whether it should be yep. whether it should be put at a different level like raised up in certain certain cities have done that like seattle and well, other it- and others have not and it's like this really interesting idea so i mean right there that's where this film is tapping into a larger conversation that's happening um, uh, in the United States and I'm sure elsewhere. And I like this uh, visual breakdown of Snowpiercer on, on io9. Um, there's a, they post this, they shared this great video, which has, um, which, which goes through the film and looks at it from a visual perspective. And what they say, what's really interesting is the, the windows to the outside world. Mm-hmm. The, you don't see the windows in, in the, in the rear. You don't see the windows in the front either. So the only place the windows are really in this film are in the middle and it's in in that middle class and it's the the explosion of color that happens is really in the middle class and the whole idea that the most dangerous aspect of the culture is the middle class and you see this in that the classroom car um that is i to me that was one of the most interesting parts of the film is you see the propagation of culture from one generation to next the um the ideas mm, mm. I, I do no. not see this io9 thing and i don't buy it because i don't think that there is really a middle class on this train well, i mean wh- you you have the front of the train and i think that the reason why the orchestrator or the the conductor rather doesn't have windows is because he doesn't need them he knows what's going on it's different from being kept in the dark from the back of the train. And the things that you're seeing in the middle, that is no middle class, my friend. That is you absolute might, luxury. 
Well, absolutely. So we don't see much of a range. In, <laughs> Just in saying. It. But if we look at it from a metaphorical perspective, uh-huh. if we look at it from being in the middle of the train, which is definitely where they are, um, I think it was very intentional to have that education and the school piece over there. And that is where um, – that is where a lot of these myths, that is where a lot of these ideas um, get put forward to the next generation. And I think if we think about our own education system and these myths that we have about Christopher Columbus and this wonderful person who came and discovered America and no one knew what America was and uh, brought, you know, helped to educate and bring uh, civility to the natives who were uncivil and all of that. We learn that kind of stuff in elementary school and it isn't until later in life that those ideas are challenged and you you really understand the what actually happened and how Christopher Columbus in, in many ways was a, a horrible person who led to the wiping out of a wide uh, race of people. So um, that, that school scene was really interesting to me. I know it's hitting you over the head, but that felt very Terry Gallium to me. It felt very Bioshock Infinite to me. Um, it also felt a little bit like Matrix to me. Mm. I think some of these ideas about the head and the heart um, and the hands, sort of social class and uh, metropolis is all about um, the, you know, this one person who can become the heart that links these different parts of the body together. Um, I think this film is exploring those ideas, but in a, in a different way. And I think that one scene just really did it for me. Well, and it was, I mean, to me, it was very Time Bandits, that scene. Um, mm-hmm. And just Alison Pill plays the insane teacher who's teaching these children all these, you know, she she basically... It talks to them and tells them if we go outside of the train we will die and all these yeah. like very nursery rhymey things and being happy and teaching them you know drilling certain thoughts into them which you know seems very nazi regime to me as well um, yeah. and just how any but any sort of belief system is put into the into place i think it's a commentary on religion as well honestly absolutely yeah um but you know, it's it's but I also want to point out that this scene in the classroom is the first scene where you see the color. Um, yes. They walk into it and it's like Technicolor. And before this, everything has been kind of like not you got some color, but it wasn't like it wasn't to this level. This is like just outrageously um, bright. Um, and, you know, it's. It's also kind of weird because they're in the they're in this thing with with these kids and they don't know what to do and these kids are actually saying horrible things to them. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So it's also you know out of the mouth of babes you hear these like horrible things that they are being taught. Um, so there's all that going on. Um, another thing which I you know kept coming up and and actually Bill and I both were agreeing on this is that it seemed like a super super creepy Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, where you the, keep the style the style totally did look the like style that, but yeah. also the idea that you're getting into a, like your your be- secrets are being revealed in room after room after room up until yeah. the point where where uh, curtis meets ed harris um That's so interesting i didn't think about and that. it's super weird and you know the whole yeah so um there's there's that going on um well can i ask you about the the bridge scene um, when they're passing by the bridge and um, they they stop, they're in the middle of this incredibly bloody battle and the action is incredibly stylized. It's intense. We see some of the... Um, even even the henchmen who are, are basically 
they open the door and uh, the next door to this car and they are faced with what can only be described as very much gimp like henchmen. Yeah. Um, they, their faces are covered. Only their mouths are there. They do this symbolic gutting of a fish, which is like, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, before they're like, I guess it's like, we're going to gut you. Yeah. Um, it's like super strange. And they're all they're all he- heavily armed. Uh, one thing. And, I, you know, this thing to me also, the action sequences and the fighting sequences seemed very um, like martial arts film to me. They did. And too. I think. But I think this is where our the director of this film he was he had something to say as well. Um, the film uh, the battle was in some ways uh, it was e- it was not even, but um, the poor had a chance, and that's when the um, they kill the lights. Well, the, the lights are killed because they go through a tunnel, and it shows you the the ideas of technological supremacy, where the soldiers do put on um, night vision, and they're able to just slaughter so many of the poor. I think even in the action scenes, and they could be they could be criticized for glorifying violence and sure all that, but I think there's a message there, and there's there is some comment social commentary that is being communicated. Ah, and, but then they rescue themselves using an Olympic torch relay. Yeah, and with yeah. man's discovery of fire, um, yeah. run a, a torch is run up through the train so that they can then thwart the henchmen. So technology is overcome by fire, which is very much. Not gonna lie, made me think of the Ewoks a little bit from Return of the Jedi <laughs> <laughs> and their ability to take down stormtroopers with rocks and um, stumps. And all. Uh, you know, it also made me think of the Apple ad. When they, you know, oh, sledgehammer, yeah. that was what it reminded me of, too. The 1984, um, the classic uh, 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 Ridley Scott commercial. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what is well, he which, trying Which to is say? also very Blade Runner-y, if you think Do about more it. More Blade Runner-y. Um, but, and around you know, and around we go. But, but Conrad, what, what, they stop to recognize the, the New Year's. What do you think that scene meant? Um, well, you know, this is the, the year. So every year this train is on a year long route. And so they pass this bridge, which means yet another year has passed. Um, I think that they try to use that particular, uh, point in time to basically be like, Hey, look, we've been keeping you guys safe for, for this many years. Um, nothing has really changed. You guys need to, to back down and go back. I mean, this was to me a very much a, like, we're going to take this and we're going to push you down and make you realize that you should be grateful for, for what we've given you. I saw it a little differently. I, I saw it just as a as a comment to the, the power of culture mm-hmm. and why we sometimes do things without even thinking about them, without even thinking about any of the uh, the reasons why. So whether it's something as simple as, um, you know, knock on wood. And um, making sure that, you know, if you say something and you don't want it to, you want to make sure it happens to knock on wood without realizing where is this coming from. I think it's that kind of idea that um, culture like the train continues to move forward without any really thought to it. Mm, Yeah, but whose culture? Because basically all the henchmen and... um you know, all the people that are in the the further parts of the train were celebrating this, but the tailenders were kind of like, well, yeah, what of it? Because they don't really they, have any sense of this. They did, but they didn't attack. They didn't attack at that point. They could have when everyone else stops. I think well, they all sort of observe it to some degree. I don't know. 
it seemed a little, uh, it, it, you know, I, I think there were different reasons for the pauses, I guess. Um, I think the tailenders were pausing like, gosh, another year, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't well, know that there was, it didn't appear to me that sentimentality was attached, but I could be wrong. I'm, I'm happy to defer. Well, so we're we're moving forward through the train, so I guess we should get to the get to the front here. And it seems like we uh, both have. Before we do that, I would also I would like to mention this one character, Gray, who's this mute um, bodyguard of of Gilliam. Yeah, that keeps appearing. He's mute. He has tattoos where he communicates. Um, I sus- I suspect maybe different scenes with him were cut, perhaps that showed him using this more. Um, but man, what what a like he was hardcore. He was pretty hardcore. He was pretty but, incredible. So anyway, just want to say that because I, well, I he was one of these characters that doesn't say a thing, but you're kind of like, yes, I want to see more of him. And that was one thing I wish they had done a little bit with him. And, and that's one of the things I did like about this film is I thought even some of the side characters had interesting um Interesting, maybe not arcs, but they, they there was more to them than just being henchmen or, or foot soldiers and stuff like that. But as we move forward through the film um, and many characters die and all of that, um, we get to Wilford. We get to the to the front and many things are revealed. This is where the film has been criticized by many to not mm. quite hold up. So, well, we should also mention that of the many people that started out at the tail end, starting this rebellion, only um, only Curtis and his two intrepid uh, and sometimes reluctant helpers, uh, the um, the main uh, the uh, Namgun Minsu and Yona. Yeah, uh, his daughter. They they are both uh, drug addicts, um, supposedly. Supposedly. Um, so they have been, you know, basically in order to open all these doors, have been asking for this drug called Cronol, which is um, made of toxic waste. And so, which sounds like a horrible drug. It does, and, so, <laughs> and they look like kind of look like uh, charcoal briquettes. Yeah. Um, and they are so they are the only two left with Curtis. That's it. Everybody else has been decimated as they come up through the train. Um, and so... And then we meet Ed Harris. We do. And and Curtis walks in and, you know, one of the things... So you go from the very tail end of the train where they have these disgusting Soylent Green blocks, as we've discussed. And he walks in and sees Ed Harris, or is invited in, rather, um, to see Ed Harris. And he's cooking a steak. Yeah. Um, a steak, which is, you know, I, I do think that these, I actually was reading about this because this was one of the sort of questions I was like, you know, I know we saw, we saw in one of the cars, livestock hanging up and different, different things hanging up. So obviously there must be animals somewhere on the train. They never showed it. And the director actually said he wanted to do that, but just because of the cost of shooting that kind of a scene, like a, like a, an animal scene, he, he was really, you know, he sort of strapped at that point and he was like yeah, yeah. And, and there was a specific reason why he didn't want to do that so mm. which i'll go into in a minute so anyway curtis sees ed harris and everything is revealed to him and things are not as they have appeared so he he basically has come up to the train to i don't know what his thought was to do was it to assassinate him or just to get answers 
Well, something he mentions in the beginning is um, things are going to be different when we get to the front, uh, which is a classic self-serving bias, mm-hmm. um, oh, thinking that you're, you're going to do this uh, better. But I think I think he wants answers. I think he wants accountability. And I think he wants to change, um, change the way the train works. Mm. Well, he and Ed Harris have a discussion. And basically, the crux of the whole issue is, is that the train has limited resources. And uh, Ed Harris reiterates the same thing we've been hearing all along, that everybody has their place, that it's a closed ecosystem. So we heard that speech in the sushi car, where Tilda Swinton's character says that, um, that basically, they have to call the fish a couple times a year to keep make sure the ecosystem stays balanced. Um, And so basically Ed Ed Harris says the same thing about the human population. And he has actually been working with Gilliam. um, Dun, dun, dun. Right. He has a little silver phone that he uses to talk to Gilliam (laughs) in his little bunk. Um, And Gilliam at this point is dead um, because more of the the first class passengers got killed during this rebellion and and the rebellions have been orchestrated they've been orchestrated as calls to keep the human population down yeah um but you know on the happy end and also very charlie in the chocolate factory um ed harris is getting older so he thinks that curtis should take over um and this is this is the huge point where i'm just like Ed, Ed Harris would this character Wilford would never do this. Well, and the the other thing that um, just from a narrative perspective that I didn't really like, there's a lot of Curtis at the end um, explaining what actually happened when um, his class, the the back of the train, um, when they first arrived on the train and they weren't provided with any food, so they started eating each other. And he, uh, and Curtis and, says, and eating babies, you and know? eating babies, and he says babies are the tastiest of all. And so their their way, Gilliam sort of says, okay, well, this is bad. Let's stop eating babies. Here, let me cut off my arm. Why don't you eat my arm? Which seems like a ridiculous way of dealing with that problem. And they all just started cutting off parts of their bodies and sharing them with each other. That part is, not only is it a lot of um, telling and not showing, um, but it it seemed a little ridiculous. And that combined with what you're saying about Wilford um, giving him the keys to the train also just didn't seem to make sense with given what we know about the character well and also not and again uh, this movie is supposed i think it's supposed to be absurd to a degree and surreal to a degree but i also think if the situation that curtis was describing in the tail end of that train happened the amount of depression and suicide uh, just wouldn't be I don't think these are people that would be able to do a rebellion. I think they'd be losing their minds, Um, you know, and and I don't know. It's it's just uh, this was a little bit over the top for me. Um, And and then the other the other pieces, which really just in terms of wanting to know certain things about this wonderfully strange little storyline is you see like. The tailenders are just basically sitting back there. You don't see that they're doing any work. You don't see, you know what I mean? Like, what is the point? Like, and even as you're walking up through the train, the only people that you really see that are actually working are the guards and the teacher. 
and I guess the Tilda Swinton character. She's just the well, mouthpiece, and, but and the children. Uh, I guess the children. Mm, sort of. It's revealed that the children are uh, the the train is no uh, longer the tail, functioning. The tail end children are working. The tail end children are working um, inside the machinery, trying to keep the train going. And I think that's where the film is. If we if we have to capture it in in a nutshell, it is has it has these messages about um, social class being a closed system, the rich needing the poor to do some of the dirty work that they don't necessarily want to do, and the lack of uh, social mobility between these uh, these different classes. Right, I think- and and also the 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 idea that you shouldn't be questioning why it just is. It's very. I mean, it's also very um, um, Anne Rand too mm-hmm. um, there's there's a lot there and I, I think ultimately it really comes down to those kids in the middle and um there that's the critical point where either the system continues or uh the culture can be challenged but it so rarely is at that point now so i thought what i thought was going to happen and in retrospect kind of wish had happened <laughs> is that what i was thinking because there is um when they're in the classroom, there's a whole propaganda film about Wilford. Which I loved. Which I was lo- fantastically weird. But part of what they say in the propaganda film was that he was this child genius. He had this idea of this crazy train. Everybody laughed at him. But then yeah. this whole CW7 thing happened. And, and he was the one that could laugh last and all this stuff. So what I thought was actually going to be the case about the train um, or what, you know, because I thought that this was what they were going to do was that everything that they were seeing outside was an illusion and that it was all actually okay outside, that this was just Wilford's insane creation. And that's not what happened, but it is still what I wish had happened. No, that's not. That would have been that would have been interesting. It would have been a little uh, M. Night Shyamalan-ish. Um, well, that's kind of where I thought they were going. But they didn't do yeah. that. Instead, no. instead, what happens is that Curtis rejects all the enticements of um, of Wilford. And instead of taking his offer to step into his shoes, um, sacrifices himself to save one of the kids um, and also the daughter. Um, both he and... Um, the engineer, the uh, the guy who has done all the doors and stuff like that, they basically block um, the bodies of the kids so that there's uh, they're going to blow away out of the train, which is what they do. And it causes an avalanche. And there's been some debate about whether or not uh, the ending is an optimistic one. And, and the director has said uh, that he does see it as an optimistic ending we'll link to his uh his his question and answer interview about that um but well, taking well i'll spoil the ending do you want to spoil it well we've spoiled everything else about this i know I, I don't see why we're being coy now no we don't have to be. <laughs> yeah 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 uh, let's not be coy now ollie uh, um so so the only two survivors or so it appears are uh yona and um Tim, who are, is one of the children from one of the children we saw from the very beginning that was taken to the front of the train, and they somehow find some Inuit type um, coats and boots. Gosh knows where they found those, but they found them, and they leave the train and they see a polar bear, and this is the first live thing that they have we have seen other than the humans the entire time. 
um, and, and the probably... fish, I guess. Um, and and that's, I mean, the director said that that's part of why he didn't want like a menagerie car was that he wanted the polar bear to be the first thing they saw. Yeah. Now my thing is is that they're now out in the middle of the snow. They see a polar bear, and obviously it's been living on something. But wouldn't they seem like really tasty somethings to it? Exactly, and wouldn't they have absolutely no clue on how to deal with another living? animal well I mean, these and, people, these, they've and been also on- like how to survive at all i mean they're still in this exactly. arctic wasteland so to me it's not personally i think this is not necessarily optimistic but you know blade runner could be taken different ways too i suppose yeah so. and i mean it's uh it's there's been a lot of debate on the internet about there's whole reddit pages about this um whether it's optimistic or not and you know i think um and what is that message like you question authority you question it you destroy the system and then where are you in the middle of a wasteland being lunch for a polar bear i don't know is that what they're trying to say despite (laughs) the the way in which it reminded me of lost um and all the polar bear shenanigans there um i think i still think this film has a lot of value even if it's just in bringing up discussions about social class and the way social class influences our lives for that this film definitely gets a recommendation for me despite its lackluster ending i think the way in which it in a very salient clear way brings up these divisions in social class i think that's that's fantastic and um for that i i I like the film i recommend the film even though the ending meh agreed agreed um i did like this film i liked certain things that are brought up i did love the visuals um i thought the cinematography i thought the fight choreography was great um there were a lot of things to like about this film Oh, the score too. Um, the score this. was very was excellent, stunning. Um, and yeah. honestly, Chris Evans, who plays Curtis, the you know, he, it's it's a huge change to see him in this versus Captain America. Yeah. Um, and I think he did an admirable job. I I kept thinking though, like, and it like he looks a lot like um, Christian Bale in this somehow to me. Oh, a little bit, yeah. Um, but just he's more rough around the edges. Yeah, but I mean, he does he does a great job as a lead here. Uh, some of it just felt a little too just really hitting you over the head with it, but perhaps that was the point. Um, yeah. And yeah, I do and- wish, I wish the editing, and I, you know, I, like when I was making noises about Ed Harris before, it wasn't because I don't like Ed Harris, I love him. I just felt like his character was a little too flat and mustache twirling. To, very to, much, very to, much like the second Matrix film when yeah. you meet the architect. It just, it feels like the film has been um, tumbling forward at such a fast pace and then we get to the the architect we get to wilford and things just yeah really slow down the one the other thing i want to mention that i like about this film it's nice in um, a summer blockbuster season to see a original film that's not a sequel um that might be based on on another on another work like a, a comic book a graphic novel but it was still original film it reminded me of when i saw district nine and moon um that summer um, whatever summer that was, I think 2009, 2008. Well, some- it's interesting that you said that because it actually did remind me a lot of District 9 in some of the things it was bringing up. Yeah, um, yeah. Just those ideas. And it's it's interesting um, that I think this this director really does identify a lot with Terry Gilliam because whether you like Terry Gilliam or no, you can't say that he doesn't bring up pretty heavy issues within his films. Um, and totally there's a lot agree. of and there's a lot of symbolism and things like that. And sometimes it's tough to get 
um, to get an audience for that in, in in a summer full of blockbusters and and yes, Guardians of the Galaxy type films, you know, and, totally. and that kind of thing. So it's it's because people, you know. And, you know, what? the other thing I will say that he did very well in this is that, yes, there are some certainly very bleak scenes, but there are also there are moments of levity and humor like they managed to keep a good balance and lighten things up so that it's not, um, you know, like you you you, you don't want to like just just go home and sleep and be all depressed after seeing it. It just <laughs> yeah. makes you have, want to have a lot of conversations about it, which I yeah. think is the point. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. So on that note, let's let's um, do you think it's time? Should we turn the tracks of this train and and take us into the I think indeed we should. Where are we going, Ollie? We are headed into the infinite crossover chamber. Woo woo. Chugga 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 chugga. Woo woo. That was good. Yeah, well, you know, trains. Um, I thought you were so, going to sing the weird song that Alison Pill sang. I was really hoping for it. Oh, my gosh. Um, that would have been amazing <laughs> if I did that. Uh, so we're doing Snowpiercer versus Game of Thrones. Wait, no, we're not. No, we're not. Versus, what are you thinking? I don't know where that came from. Um, versus Hunger Games. Um they both have games in the title, so my neurons got switched a little bit. Sorry, I'm just coming off a like five days at a big psychology conference, so I think my my neurons are fried a little bit. Um, but both these movies have trains, and they both are dystopias, and they both are about social class, so and they both have challenges to get to certain. Totally. And um, so what's the question that we're debating today, Conrad? Well, the question is today is which dystopian future would you like to be living in (laughs) or would you prefer (laughs) to be living in? Um, I think that this is going to be a very short crossover chamber, although I can certainly expand on why. Um, Probably. So you've got uh, Snowpiercer, which we talked about, very clear social class, not much room for movement. You might have to eat bars of insects and uh, your kids might get taken away and you might get shot down. Um, what about the Hunger Games world? Well, in Hunger Games, you're in the the land of Panem, and um, basically, you also have have don't have. If you're in the lower class, you don't have access to food. It's doled out to you by the upper class, similar to uh, Snowpiercer Train. Um, but to in order to get that kind of food, and so you don't starve, everybody has to be entered into a lottery so that they don't go into an uprising. Um, so there's a lot of things surrounding that, and you you know if you get into the Hunger Games, then there is a very good chance that you're going to die. You're probably going to die. Yeah. Um, especially as we see in um <laughs> in the the second hunger games book and and movie um if you aren't if you are in any way older you're dead mm-hmm. if you're any way super young you're dead uh, not many people survive that well and if you're also from a district that that isn't you know whatever wares you're providing to the main city and to the upper class if it's not considered you know super valuable then you don't you know you don't get as much training or or options so um, so, so Katniss Everdeen's district is just they're the miners and they provide but it's considered dirty work so um, and not miners but they do like yeah they do like coal and stuff like that but compared to other districts they don't get the favor that that you know districts that provide like you know f- um, weapons and stuff 
And this is where both films do have this interesting social commentary about the the ideas of uh, Snowpiercer, where it is uh, a closed system. There isn't mobility. We need to keep people in check. And in Hunger Games, the whole idea of let's distract everyone from the hunger, from the famine, from all of this by creating division among the different districts. And let's let's distract everyone with this reality TV show and, and all of that. And there's interesting social commentary there. But our question today is not about which one is a better dystopia. It's which dystopia would you rather be stuck in? Um, I have to tell you, uh, Conrad, I'm playing the odds here. I want to be in the Hunger Games world. Here's uh, why. Well, go for it. Well, here's why. Um, you're, you definitely have a chance of being called into the Hunger Games. But each year, you know, only one person, uh, one tribute is is called. So I think the stats there are, are a little no, no, low. No, no, no. Well, Yes. Two well, one male, one male, one, one male, female, one, one female. So um, there's that. And um, yeah, there's a lot of famine. Yeah, people are really hungry. Um, but at least I can move around. I've got space. I can kind of uh, walk in different places. I'm not stuck on a train. I like trains, but I don't want to live on one. Um, and, you know, you have the option to buy things on the black market and, you know, poach totally. for hunting and stuff like that. Totally. I can actually get some fresh air. Um, Snowpiercer, unless I'm like super rich, it seems like a pretty bummer of a place to live. Well, and I think, you know, I'm coming out on the same page here, Ollie, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> there, there's a lot of things going on. One is that your option even to kind of work around the system is very limited in Snowpiercer. I'm sure there are certain ways you could, but you're stuck in a train and also outside is a wasteland. So it's not like you can run away from the train very easily. Yeah. Um, and very easily or at all, for that matter. Um, and in Hunger Games, while you are under the thumb of the capital um, in, in Pan Am, um, you are you're able to skirt around some of those rules. There is the ability to get away from it to some extent. You do have a small amount of freedom. Um, it is still terrible and there are still horrible things that you do have to undergo and things that you have to watch and worry about your family and things like that. But I think that there are more options to get away from it or get away with certain things. Totally. Which, uh, you know, especially if you're Katniss Everdeen. But um, it's, yeah, I, I guess that's going to be my dystopian future. And of course, they, they eventually rebel. Um, but, you know, that's the interesting thing between these two films. There's that same theme, which is, you know, what happens when... The lower the the lower class in each of these films, or the the class that is being uh, um, oppressed, rises up and t- and tries to take over. Is it going to be better? And um, they're definitely. Have you read the books? I I have not read the books. I try. I read the first one. I have not read the second two. Well, I mean, there's this whole theme that you know, not theme really, but the part of the plot is that you know, Katniss is part of this rebellion and the idea is that they're going to take over and the government's going to be so much better. And she sees a lot of indications that it may not be depending on who's taking over, you which know? links us right back to Snowpiercer. Right. So, so, so there's like a lot of commonality there. Um, just as an aside, but, yeah, but for purposes, cool- for purposes of this crossover chamber, I'm going to go with Pan Am. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I will vote for the, the capital city here too. No, um, no, no. Capital city is where all the, the rich people live. 
You, uh, wouldn't, you wouldn't be there. You would be in one of the districts. Uh, what? Okay. Well, still. Unless uh, you were an elitist. I mean, I don't know. You're one of the, the people living in the capital puking up f- food because they can. As a, but if we well, are, even then, even then, I would rather be in the capital city over the front few trains of Snowpiercer. I yeah. would still pick that. Like even whatever end of the train or social spectrum we're talking about, I think I'd still pick Hunger Games over Snowpiercer. What's cool though about both of these is I do like the fact that um, dystopian stories um, are back. Then a lot of young people have read Hunger Games, and I like the fact that it's um, um, this genre and the ideas behind this genre are popular again. That's a cool thing. Yeah, um, I also just have to throw in like that the people in the capital city also do really weird stuff with their bodies and their hair and stuff in, tr- in the name of fashion. Hmm. So well, would you you've... would you turn yourself into like a tiger or something? Because that would be pretty cool. <laughs> I would. Can I be an eagle? Do people do that? I don't know. But there's one character that that like has her face like cosmetically altered to look like a cat or something. It's super weird. Well, maybe I'll just buy some of those cool fashion clothes that they, they have over there. They've got some nice fashion forward stuff in the capital. Anyways, I don't want to be an elitist. Um, I vote for Hunger Games. So one of the districts in Hunger Games. Yeah, sure. Right. Uh, well, yeah. since you haven't read the books, I won't ask you which district, but... Uh, um, three. <laughs> I'll be in District 3. That's that's the one for me. Uh, oh, Ollie. <laughs> All right, with that, let's close up the doors on the Infinite Crossover Chamber. <laughs> on to what? our top five. What was that? That was the uh, the doors of the train that are um, getting locked up as we move on to our next destination. All right. Well. Or if you want, I can do a doors closing. Doo-doo. Anyways, top five. Uh, what's on our top five today, Conrad? Uh, top five, to lighten things up a bit, is uh, top five train movies. Yeah, so pretty mm. much just a movie that has a train. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> right. so, so that's pretty good. So um, that was my criteria. I, I was thinking of movies that feature a train, and I like the movie. That was about it. <laughs> yeah, all right, there we so go. So we're on the same page there. Um, yeah, which is nice for once. Sometimes we get into different directions. Um, all right, well, um, I'll go first. My oh. number five is Unbreakable. Ooh, that's this- pretty good. Yeah, right? Um, I like Unbreakable. This is a 2010 M. Night Shyamalan film. This was his sophomore effort right after Sixth Sense. And the link to a train is uh, the train features heavily in Bruce Willis's character and his sort of discovery of his powers. I like this film. I think it has um, it's a cool superhero movie done in a realistic way. It kind of taps into some of the same things that Heroes did when it was on NBC. Um, I think it's one of his underrated films. So that's my number five. Yeah, I agree. And it is totally underrated. I I think that that's now I'm going to go on and watch that again. Oh, yeah, we should. We should do a revisit at some point. Yeah. um, My number five was Murder on the Orient Express. Did you ever see this? 
Uh, a while ago, yeah, that's a good one. Um, and it's been remade, but this was uh, the 1974 version was the original, and that's the one I'm going with, and that's with Albert Finney. Uh, it's super creepy, based on an Agatha Christie novel, and it was just this whole weird thing, and a lot of people have parodied this. Um, but it's just the idea of being trapped on a train and having like a murder mystery going on. And so there's just interesting stuff that goes on with people's psyche and trying to figure out who done it. Yeah, I think we had a lot of these kind of films um, a few decades ago, and I think they've been replaced by uh, plots that happen on an airplane. Mm-hmm. But you can get interesting stories when people are stuck in a certain situation and things start to happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I also think that... Um, <laughs> I I was going to tease you and put snakes on a train on here, but, <laughs> which is just you know yes it's it does exist, but I didn't I didn't, um, but yeah. Oh man, that's one of those like parody movies that that come out and making fun of the big budget movies. Yeah, no, I I'm aware of uh, snakes on a train. Actually, um, at Brainwise on Twitter mentioned snakes on a train to me when. Uh, when we messaged about or when we tweeted our top five for today. Um, My number four, Back to the Future Part 3. Well, this is why it's my number four, Conrad. Uh, It's My favorite Back to the Future is still probably the second one. I really love the second one and very close behind is the first one. The The third one is my least favorite. Um, but even, even having said that, I still really like the film and a train features very heavily in the plot and spoiler alert, it very much features heavily at the end too. Um, so I, um, I like it. Um, my number four was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You know, I love that film so much. I do, and you know exactly yeah. what scene I'm talking about right yeah, now. Yeah, I know exactly what you're doing. Uh, and it's one of my favorite scenes. It's one of my favorite scenes. It uh, features River Phoenix in a flashback with young Indiana Jones as young Indiana Jones. So and cool. He has this whole scene where he's running away from these uh, mercenaries, grave robbers, what have you. Um, and he has, like, stolen the artifact, uh, the the cross of coronado um and in order to get away from them he basically jumps a train and honestly similar to to snowpiercer he has to go through different cars to get out um and one of them involves uh, a lion and one of them involves snakes (laughs) of course um and it was one of my i just loved this scene i still love it um so i had to throw it in here Oh, that's a good pick. I totally forgot about that qualifying for this because of that scene. But that's that's a great pick, Conrad. Cool. Um, my number three, um, I wanted to go with Hitchcock here. Now, the common choice would be Strangers on a Train. That, but oh, wait. that's not my choice. Oh, I know which one it is. Go I'm doing it. a switcheroo on H.A. Conrad. And I'm going with North by Northwest. I that was on my list too because it's always what I, I think of those scenes on the train. Yep. Um and it's it's always this really interesting little dynamic. So I I love uh, he Hitchcock does a nice job um 
making the train sort of a character in these films. And um, while I like Strangers on a Train a lot, man, that guy is so creepy in that film. I like the plot of North by Northwest a little bit better, and it kind of keeps me in suspense a little bit more. Stranger, Strangers on a Train was on my honorable mentions list. And the only reason that it wasn't, you know, because I already had Murder on the Orient Express, and I felt like there's a little too much whodunit going on. Yeah, there is. There is. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, but- so what's... What's your number three then? Uh, my number three was actually Source Code. Oh, yeah. That's which, on my honorable mention. Which I know that we had mentioned before, but it's just like a really interesting thing. And most of the action takes place on the train. Um, and you're trying to figure out what's happened to this character. And he's he keeps sort of reliving this day on the train when there's a terrorist attack. Um, but I really, I really enjoyed it. And again, still one of my favorites. Go for it, people. And that's cool because it's a commuter train, too. It's not like a uh, yep. big Amtrak train or something like that. Yep. Um, it, it's honorable mention for me just because we recently discussed it, but I, I really like that film. Cool. Uh, what is your number two? Number two, I'm going for a classic here. This is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Nice. Uh, one of my favorites. That movie is uh, a ton of fun, and you do follow these characters as they rob trains and do all that kind of fun stuff. Um, just a great Western. Cool. What about yours? Uh, mine is The Darjeeling Limited. Oh, you know, I haven't seen this yet. What? No. Well, and actually, again, with the, the film today, there were certain things about it that reminded me a little Wes Anderson, just how very stylized a lot of the sets were. Yeah. Um, and a little bit like some of the colors as you get further up into the train. Um, and so this is about a group of brothers that it are um, basically all in a mourning period after the death of their father. And this is like a few years after the death of their father. And they're on this mission to go and find their mother. Um, and it's a really fascinating film in that way. I know it doesn't get um, as many accolades as some of Wes Anderson's other films, but I do think it's really beautiful, and it honestly makes me want to take a train tour in India. <laughs> well, I love um, I love Wes Anderson's work, and he does have a very unique visual style, um, and it's just nice to follow his, uh, his cinematography. Um, so I'll have to check this out. If it's on your list, it's going on uh, my queue. Yeah, and so. it is It is one of the, you know, it's one of those films that, you know, you're like, oh, obviously a Wes Anderson film, but there's a lot of deeper things going on there that um, there's some really interesting and, and some heartbreaking moments between the siblings. And I just really, you know, I think maybe that's part of why I like his films is that he's got yeah. these, they, they everything seems very light and whatever, and then suddenly he, like, just hits you with something insanely emotional. Um, well, and this also makes me think I maybe I should have delved into the Bollywood vault a little bit because trains play a major role in South mm-hmm. Asia, in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and the, it's just a really interesting history of the how trains came to be in the British Empire and how these uh, these very uh, very old train systems are still running and are still kind of the lifeblood of transportation in that region of the world. So um, interesting. I'm going to have to check it out. Cool. What's your number one? Number one uh, top train movie for me is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice. So I wanted to definitely lift the mood here a little bit. This is the classic comedy um, from John Hughes uh, starring the great Steve Martin and the late John Candy um, about these two guys kind of making their way, going through all these different forms of transportation. Um, Two of the funniest guys um, definitely of that era. 
uh, together in this very silly, fun movie. It's it's a great one when it's on TV. I need to watch it. Uh, what not throw Mama from the train? <laughs> throw Mama from the train. Uh, that that did come up in my research. However, that <laughs> uh, did not qualify uh, on my list. Uh, my number one was the station agent with station Peter. D- Jeez. Yep, with Peter Dinklage, and it is a really incredible little film. I I still think it's it's still very much an independent film, and I don't know that it had a huge um, following, but it should have a huge following. Peter Dinklage is absolutely incredible in this, um, and it's a it's a really really interesting film about uh, his character's journey. Um, and I highly recommend it. So never heard of it. I don't um, want to. I don't want to give too much away. Honestly, I, I, it's just really, really good. So you should watch well, that one too. I'm a big fan of Peter Dinklage, so that is going on my queue as well. Um, I had just a few honorable mentions. Source code, which you already mentioned, uh, Dumbo is on the list. Here's why. Because um, there's an emotional scene when Dumbo finally gets to be with his mom in his mom's cart on the train, and that always made me cry. I can't watch Dumbo. That's like just too depressing to me. It's just awful. You know, it it, it was a movie I watched. I watched that VHS tape over and over and over again. I think my mom had that whole film memorized because I just always watched it. So it's it's a very emotional one for me. Ping, pings a lot of that nostalgia. Dark, uh, Ollie. Dark. It's weird. Well, I was too young. I was too young. Now, to isn't it weird watching weird some of those films? Oh though? man, oh. I, I kind of have to fast forward that whole drunk Dumbo scene. It's so uh, weird it's and strange. Awful. Uh, Anyways, the other two, um, Harry Potter. Um, let's go with uh, and the Sorcerer's Stone, just because that's a first introduction to the Hogwarts Express, and I think it's kind of magical. Last one is Three Ten to Yuma, um, and I'm going with the remake here. Um, I thought it was a really just fun, well-paced action film. Um, I had a few on my list, too. Um, I also had Harry Potter Mm -hmm. um, because Hogwarts Express is such a huge thing. Um, And, you know, I do recommend when you go to the Harry Potter's uh, Wizarding World down at uh, Universal Studios, check it out. There's always there's a conductor there and he'll answer all your questions. Conrad, now there's a ride. Yes, there's I a, know, I know. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of cool things surrounding it. So I, I say go for that. Um, I also had Strangers on Train, as I mentioned, um, The Taking of Pelham 123, um, and Trading Places. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, is there a train in Trading Places? I yes, there's remember. a big train. There's this whole part of the film where... Um, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy are on the train to New York. And there's and you know there's all sorts of of crazy things that happen on the train. <laughs> um, Very cool. Because Very they cool. want to you know they're buying the the orange report or they're trying to steal the orange report from the the horrible man that has it attached to his wrist. So yeah. So yes, wanna... it is it is there. There is a train, but yeah, it couldn't be oh. in the top five. I also want to share uh, one of our listeners' top um, top train movies at Brainwise on Twitter said "Unstoppable" from 2010, which I haven't seen, um, but it it was it definitely came up in my research. He also mentioned "Strangers on a Train," "Murder on the Orient Express," which is one of yours as well, and "The Train of Life," which I haven't seen. I haven't seen that uh, either. No, and um, he humorously mentioned snakes on a train, but did not rank it on his list. So I think there's there's I think, a lot of. I, I think you can only humorously mention snakes on a <laughs> yeah, train. Yeah. Really, 
Um, so we've we've got some um, some great train movies, uh, dear listeners. We would love to hear what are your favorite train movies, as well as where you want to live, um, this dystopian future of Snowpiercer or Hunger Games, and also just in general what you thought of Hunger Games or Snowpiercer. Sorry again, neurons crisscrossing. Um, <laughs> so uh, Conrad, uh, people can reach us at info and super fantastic nerd hour. Um, we've also got a website. What is our website? Our website is superfastignerdhour.com. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> and we're on. Nice nice for spring that on me, Ollie. I just kind of wanted to see. You always kind of mess up the reanimate. You switch the reanimate podcast. I do, I do, because we have two. Well, so, yeah, because yeah, reanimated, it's reanimatepodcast.com, but on Twitter, we're reanimatedpcast. Pcast. Yep, yep. Um, and on Twitter, we are at Nerd Hour. Um, Conrad, oh, where can our listeners find you this week? Well, I already just gave the, the reanimated plug. So um, on Twitter, I'm Die Prince, and I'm also um, on the super fantastic Nerd Hour Twitter feed. And I am the science fiction psychologist at brainknowsbetter.com. Um, I am also on Twitter at Alima2, and uh, I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, <laughs> that sounded a little like intimate. Uh, well, it's not intimate as much as it is just me rhyming stuff. Um, <laughs> I will rhyme stuff despite the context or meaning of it, and only later do I realize that things might have been a little bit boundary pushing. So, I apologize to the near our listeners, um, but always happy to have uh, intimate conversations about nerdy things. So I will stop right here because my neurons are getting depleted of all myelination. So, um, <laughs> Conrad, that was an awesome time uh, going through that with you. And uh, we will uh, we'll be back next week for more adventures in uh, nerdery. Indeed. Until then, uh, live long and prosper. And indeed again. <laughs> See you guys. 